0: The History of Literature Podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. He was a strange creature," said Nabokov, but genius is always strange End quote." His name was Nikolai Gogol, and he forever changed the course of Russian literature. Born in 1809, he and his contemporary Pushkin influenced the Titans who followed including Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Chekhov. Best known for his novel Dead Souls, his play The Government Inspector, and a handful of classic short stories like Diary of a Madman and The Nose, it is his short story The Overcoat that perhaps best expresses his artistry and influence. As Dostoevsky famously said, We all come out from under Gogol's overcoat. Dostoevsky was referring to the Russian writers of his generation, but he could have looked into the future and cited any number of authors, from Franz Kafka to Jampa Lahiri. But who was this unusual writer? Where did he come from? What was so different about his fiction, and what made it resonate with readers? And why does his story The Overcoat still have the power to make me weep? We'll take a look at Nikolai Gogol today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, etc., etc., etc. Amateur enthusiast, taking a deep dive into everything from the sonnet form... To great literary debuts, to numbers and novels, to books you don't need to read, to John Donne, to Bob Dylan's lyrics, to Madame Bovary, to Confucius, to I don't know. Everything is fair game, I guess. 180 some of these things. We're closing in on 200 people. What should we do for episode 200? Should probably do something special. I'll take suggestions on Twitter or email if you have one. I also take requests. Though my list is long, I do try to play the hits. We've had a few requests for Thomas Hardy, which has zoomed him up my list. Such a fascinating writer. There's so many of these. The list is long. So for episode 200, you know, I really don't listen to these episodes much. That's one of the strange things about the nature of podcasting. People will listen to an episode I did a couple of years ago, write me an email about it, asking a question or offering some praise or a word of criticism. And sometimes it brings it all back, and I think, oh, right, I was pretty deep into that one at the time. (laughs) May have gotten a little carried away, or I remember that one, I found it odd. Or if it was a guest, I usually remember the feeling I had when being in the conversation. But a lot of the time I think, wow, that sounds really good. This sounds like a podcast I would like. I should subscribe. <laughs> as if I wasn't right here the whole time. I mean, it's it's me talking. These are my words. They all come out of my mouth. And yet, I become sort of like a third person as time passes. I would imagine it's like this for actors, catching a glimpse of something they did years before. Maybe a, a movie or an episode of a show. Maybe they barely remember being in it. And so they watch for the first time. I heard a great story once about the actor, Kirk Douglas, who told his son, Michael, who was also an actor, of course. The other other day, Kirk said, I was watching an old movie with myself in it, and I was thinking that I was pretty good. And then I realized that it wasn't me, it was you. That's kind of how I feel, except I'm playing both Douglas parts in the story. I hear someone talk about something I said, and I think, hey, yeah, that's not bad. I'm proud of that one, except it's not really me. It's some other guy who did that. It's very strange. So let's do this for episode 200. Send me an episode, idea, something you want me to re-listen to. Maybe I got something wrong. Maybe I got something right. Tell me why you think I should listen again. Would that be good? I'll go back and listen to it and give you my thoughts. So it's kind of like a clip show, like a greatest hits show, except it will have new content as well. Or if you have another idea for what we should do to celebrate episode 200, send that in. We will do our best. Let's take a quick break and then get to the man of the hour. One of my favorite authors who only gets better with time. Or maybe I should say with age. Nikolai Gogol after this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Nikolai Gogol was born in 1809 in the Ukraine, which was then part of the Russian Empire. He was viewed as exceedingly average, unpromising in just about every respect, and he spent his childhood and adolescence longing for greatness. He was convinced of his need to be special, and he was possessed of a desire to be great to leave some kind of a mark. At the same time, he had no clear idea about how he would accomplish this. His father— a middle-class landowner, died when he was 16, and a few years later he set out for St. Petersburg, where he thought he might have a career in the law, or as he put it, justice. A year earlier, he had told a friend that since he was a young boy, he had, quote, "...burned with an unquenchable fervor to make my life necessary for the good of the state." End quote. Things in St. Petersburg didn't go particularly well, He shifted gears and tried to get a job as an actor at the Imperial Theaters, but his audition failed spectacularly. He taught at a girls' school for a while and finally landed a low-level job in the civil service, an occupation which was later to occupy much of his mental energy and serve as the source material for some of the world's great literary masterpieces. It's worth talking about this source material because what Gogol did with it is both a key to his success and at the same time has often been misunderstood. There are two great settings for Gogol, the provinces like the ones of his Ukrainian childhood and St. Petersburg, which was at that time the capital of Russia. Within each of those settings, he finds his spiritual home among the bureaucracy, the civil servants, the lunatics and strivers, the pointlessly ambitious and the woebegone toilers. He has a satirical eye, but he's more than just a social critic. His satire extends, it broadens and deepens until it talks about something larger than just the petty little world of government workers. He starts with that, then he covers that, and it's convenient and easy to leave it at that, to say, ah, yes, here's Gogol telling us about the futility of a world encrusted with endless layers of bureaucratic nightmare. But there's more. Like Melville or Kafka, there's more. There's humanity in this system, humanity expressed and humanity distorted. And that's what makes Gogol more than just a product of his time, but a genius for all time. Let me interrupt here for a second and give you a road map of where we're headed. In a minute, I'm going to finish the biographical sketch of Gogol, and we'll get to the five works of his that we should discuss, including the two that I most encourage you to read, which are the short stories The Nose and The Overcoat. I think The Overcoat might be one of the greatest stories ever written, and it's one I can read again and again. I will be reading that story for the rest of my life, I think. But before I do any of that, I want to talk about St. Petersburg to give you some context for that. I learned some things recently which changed how I view Gogol. It helps me understand the world in which he's writing and the world he's translating into his fiction. Both the nose and the overcoat are set in St. Petersburg, and I think it's no accident that they are among his greatest works. Ukraine was kind of in vogue at that time. There was a literary movement to privilege and and record folk tales and stories of the people and the customs and songs and clothing and everything of those who lived on the outskirts of empire, the little Russians, as they were called and as they called themselves. Gogol latched on to that trend. He himself had an affinity for the Ukraine that lasted all his life, and he joined the group of writers who used the provinces as their setting. But St. Petersburg is the setting that resonates with me. Maybe it's because I myself made a similar journey from a tiny town in provincial Wisconsin to the capital of this country. Not by design, not because I like Washington, D.C. In fact, I hate most things about it. This city I don't even think of as a city. It's a place with city-like features. I think it's corrupt. I think it's full of lunatics and thieves I think it's full of striving people who run with all the morality of rats in a sewer, eager to get their little paws. Do do rats have paws? Claws? Mitts? Eager to get their little mitts on whatever crumbs they think will make them into better rats. Not crumbs to eat, crumbs to hoard and lord over their fellow rats. They'd rather hold up a to the others to try to make them jealous than to eat the crumb and survive. Vanity and status are more important than actual sustenance. That's DC today, and it's the St. Petersburg I read in Gogol. But like Gogol, I had to leave my home and try to make some kind of fortune, and I made a bunch of bad decisions and ran through a bunch of pseudo-careers before landing here, and now I'm making the best of it. So that's number one. Number two of the things that resonate with me are the people I recognize in Gogol, but let me talk about St. Petersburg first, because the city as it was experienced by Gogol is riveting. St. Petersburg, as many of you know, was sort of considered the most European of Russia's major cities, the most cosmopolitan. But it didn't start that way. It was built by Peter the Great in 1703 on land he seized during a war with Sweden. There wasn't much there then, a swamp with a fortress on it. Someone built a log cabin to be the first residence, and then, through Peter's massive desire to have a northern capital, a window to the west, they transformed the place, bringing in Italian and other European architects, building churches, making it as cultured and attractive as Peter had hoped. Catherine the Great pushed forward the development, including the erection of a great statue of Peter, on a horse. By now, the late 1700s, the capital did become what Peter had hoped, a symbol of modernity and progress and culture. But there was always something false and artificial about this St. Petersburg, the one that was imposed on this swamp. There's a sense that nature is kept at bay, but only temporarily. We see this in Gogol. We see this in Pushkin. This sense of How long can you keep the swamp down? How long before this city floods, before nature comes roaring back to reclaim its rightful territory? There's an uneasiness that we'll see in Gogol's narrative. The wind, the rain, the swamp itself, nature can go on the attack in St. Petersburg. I feel the parallels here, too. I've spent enough time in Washington, D.C., which was also built on a swamp a capital city imposed upon an unnatural location. And if you live through July and August with the heat and humidity and mosquitoes, you would feel the same way. This is unnatural. Nature doesn't like this city being here. All these buildings, all these structures erected to symbolize democratic values and civic virtue and rationality and reason and artistic and cultural achievement Nature's just waiting to drench them all in sweat, to suck them back into the muck and mire. Maybe it won't happen for decades or centuries, but it will happen. And in the meantime, we'll all be sticky and sodden and sullen. Our smiles fleeting, our steps slowed, our best intentions thwarted by fatigue and disease and corruption. That's kind of Gogolian. It rings true. I know his world. The second thing about St. Petersburg is that no one is at home there. Again, we see this in D.C. A lot of people roll in from other states, other countries to make this their home. Ambassadors and diplomats and bankers and lawyers and lobbyists and spies from all over the world and from the states, We see defense contractors and military personnel and politicians and their staff and countless other apparatchiks from both the private and public sectors. People move in, they sink temporary roots; they rotate in and out. And while they're here, they break and they grab and their dreams die and they slink back to wherever they came from. Or they stay here, stuck in the mire, waiting to slowly disappear into the bog like the captain of a vessel with a slow leak, his shoes nailed to the floor, his eyes staring at the imperceptibly rising horizon. That's also very Gogolian. Here's Gogol on the St. Petersburg he found as a young man. He wrote home to his mother, In general, every city is characterized by its people who imprint it with national traits, but Petersburg has no character. The foreigners who have settled here have made themselves at home and are not like foreigners at all. And the Russians, for their part, have turned foreign and have become neither one thing nor another. The silence of the city is extraordinary. There is no flash of spirit in the people. They're all office workers or officials. Everything is crushed. Everything is mired in trivial pursuits. End quote. It's a bleak. Portrait. Gogol's genius was to take that milieu, those characters, and to examine them carefully. He found the absurdity in their actions. He found the humor. He exposed the truths he wanted to expose, but he also found the humanity. He found the core of them, and he found the core of those around them. This is why Gogol rings true through the ages. It's not just pointing out the foibles of a society to say, "Hey, here's a a bureaucracy run amuck." Let me tell you all about the problems with the way our society is constructed. He's not a social reformer, analyzing a culture, trying to foster progress or initiate change. You don't read Gogol and think, well, it sounds like Russia in the first half of the 19th century needed some reforms. But I don't live in Russia. And anyway, things have no doubt changed so much his prescriptive advice is no longer necessary or useful. No. Gogol's not an advocate for some legislation that's needed. He's saying, ah, here's what this world is like, and here's how it exposes what's true and basic and fundamental about being human. Here's how human beings, these poor, miserable, but also fantastic creatures, respond to conditions like these. Here's where we can find pity and empathy and love and hatred within ourselves toward these people, toward these characters, because we can recognize bits of ourselves here. Nabokov, who's always worth reading on Russian authors, and you can find his lectures on Gogol and Tolstoy and Chekhov and Dostoevsky and others collected in one volume. Nabokov notes this difference that I'm drawing between reading Gogol as a kind of enumerator of sociopolitical problems and reading Gogol as someone who explores those problems as part of a deeper and more timeless exploration of humanity. One is limited in time and space, the other is universal. And yet, because the world is so fantastically portrayed in Gogol, it's easy to fall into the trap of reading only for the limited version, assuming that the important thing in Gogol is to understand his take on society, or to look at the comic bumbler and see it as the portrait of a buffoon. When I read Gogol this time around, and let me pause here, since we're on the subject of Nabokov, and say that Nabokov also wanted to correct the American pronunciation of Gogol, and say, it's not Gogol or Gogol, but Gogol. And he sort of snippily says, you can't read a writer if you can't even pronounce his name. And here's where Nabokov and I part way- depart ways, depart ways, part ways because I agree that trying your best with pronunciation is important. But I also think it's somewhat unimportant. We say Florence and not Firenze, but they are both awesome cities and they're both awesome names. And I say Nabokov, which I think is right, because a scholar I met long ago hammered it into me that it was Nabokov and not Nabokov. And I defer to her because she was smart as hell and she'd read everything he'd ever written. She was a scholar of Russian literature. But Sting pronounced it Nabokov in his song. And I know Sting has the reputation of being pretentious now, but I still like the police. Damn it. They were as cool as the Beatles in their era, which was also my era. And their music still holds up. Just ask Bruno Mars, who borrowed their sound and made himself a fortune with it. And I don't listen to a song like that or a pronunciation and think, Sting's wrong, what an idiot. Just like I don't think a young person is wrong when they say Proust or Froude. Okay, maybe those I chuckle at a little because they're truly mistakes, but I don't chuckle a lot, I don't dismiss them, because a lot of times we read things we've never heard pronounced. That's how reading works. And I like it when people discover new words and new ideas, that they're not being spoon-fed by some crusty old teacher who delivers the word along with some correct pronunciation of it. But even more than that, I hear Sting's version, Nabokov, and I think there's Sting, there's an Englishman. He's standing for all the English people who read Lolita and love it, who've absorbed it, were horrified by it, and who engaged with it. They had Nabokov, not Nabokov, and that's great. Nabokov himself can have his version, but the English can have theirs. It's not a bad thing. It's a shade of complexity that is healthy and normal and even somewhat interesting. I'm Jack Wilson here in America, but in Italy, I'm Jack Wilson, and that's fine. That's good. I love it. I'm proud of fitting in that way. And frankly, Mr. Nabokov, with all due respect to a great literary master, although he's frankly sometimes wrong-headed and overly stubborn, Gogol is a better name in English to my ear than goggle. Goggle sounds weak, like the cry of a damaged bird, a bird with laryngitis. I think of gawk and gaggle and some swan that's just been choked. Gogol is different to my ear. It's like a deep color, a dark purple and blackish color we've never had described before. It's dark and hollow and vast and mysterious. The author of Dead Souls and Diary of a Madman. It's definitely a better name in English than Gogol. It's better than Gogol. Or Gogol, which sounds like a French painter. It's Gogol. The name ancient mystics gave to the black holes they imagined as they looked into the sky and realized how empty and infinite the universe actually is. How the pinpoints of light fade into nothing, absorbed by the darkness. So, back to Nabokov and his better advice for how to read Gogol rather than just how to pronounce the name, which is kind of a, a, a detour we took. Remember, Nabokov says, there are two traps here. You can read a comic figure. And look, this is Gogol's trick in just about everything he does. Remember, there are two essential stories in literature. A stranger comes to town and a man goes on a journey, which, of course, is actually just the same story told from two different perspectives. Gogol over and over tells the story of a stranger coming to town. Here's the world buzzing along, sometimes normal, sometimes bizarre. But in any case, here's the disruption. Here's the person who changes things. Here's the the fantastical occurrence that disrupts the pattern and makes us see things more clearly. And Nabokov says, some readers get focused on the disruptor and say, ha ha, what a great comic figure, what a loser, what a buffoon. And other readers focus on the pattern and say, Ah, I'm not fooled by the buffoon. I know how to focus on the pattern itself. And I can see that Gogol was telling me exactly what was wrong with the society. Both those are not wrong. But stopping there is wrong. It's not the way to read Gogol. Here's how Nabokov puts it. The superficial reader of Gogol, and his story, The Overcoat in particular, the superficial reader of The Overcoat will see in it the heavy frolics of an extravagant buffoon. The solemn reader will take for granted that Gogol's prime intention was to denounce the horrors of Russian bureaucracy. But neither the person who wants a good laugh, nor the person who craves for books, quote, that make one think, end quote, will understand what The Overcoat is really about. Give me the creative reader this is a tale for him. End quote. The creative reader. That's in some ways been my entire journey as a reader trying to get to this point. I don't mean that the act of reading is to take a text and chop it up and make it mine to elevate the critic over the author. I mean to read with your mind open and your heart engaged, and to go as deep into the world that this author designed as possible to find out what you can from literature and bring it back like a treasure. Let me give you an example. We're jumping all the way to the overcoat now, but that's okay. I'm obsessed with the story. Can't really stop thinking about it. We might need to hold off on the biography a little more, and the, now the bean counters here in the studio are waving at me. With both arms, they don't have enough beans to eat, let alone count. The poor little bellies are empty, devoid of beans. Let's take our last quick break so we can afford to buy them a few of these little beans to count or eat, their choice. And then come back with my take on Nabokov's creative reading so I can tell you how Gogol, not Gogol or Gogol, But Gogol, beautiful, dark, and mysterious Gogol, made me weep. I'm going to start with a character from my own life. One of those Gogolian figures whom we've all encountered. Mine was a guy I'll call Frank. Frank Felsky. I was at a camp for high-achieving Wisconsin high school students. They sent me because they had to send someone. Would have been embarrassing for the school not to send a single person. But I was in over my head. My friends were there, too. We had a good time doing our best, even as the kids from the cities dominated everything. This was called Badger Boy State. And the idea was that you went for a week and lived on a campus. We were at Ripon College, the alma mater of Harrison Ford and Spencer Tracy. And you put together a mock state government. You run for office and elect other kids to be governor and lieutenant governor and everything down to fire chief and city councilman and so on. You meet a lot of impressive kids there. One guy I remember was headed to Notre Dame to be the quarterback. He ran for governor and won. My father went there. He had gone there years before me and he said at night, Al Giroux used to play the guitar and sing in the dorm. Do people today know Al Giroux? He sang the theme for Moonlighting. (laughs) I guess I should ask if people today know Moonlighting. Television show from the 80s. God, I feel so old. It was a long time ago that I was there. That's part of the story. The passage of time, that is. Anyway, there was a kid there named Felsky, who was running for just about anything and losing everything. He gave the same speech every time. He'd say, gentlemen. I'm running for X. Vote for me. I'm meticulous and enthusiastic. And and then he'd forget the third thing every single time. He'd just trail off. Maybe there was no third thing. Maybe that's all he was. Meticulous and enthusiastic. Two qualities. But he knew that Naming things like qualities should come in threes. It's the natural order of things. He never won. Everyone won something. There were more jobs than people. And somehow, Felsky continued to lose. He either got one vote, his own, or sometimes he got two votes when someone threw him one as a joke, or sometimes he got no votes at all as he himself decided that another candidate was more deserving. Felsky was taking this seriously. He believed in the importance of campaigning sincerely for these jobs that were fake and didn't matter. In this group where most people cared more about the all-you-can-eat ice cream bar than the lectures and activities we did in between meals. So, that was Felsky. Meticulous, enthusiastic, and dot 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 Felsky. One day I found myself at a table with him eating lunch, and while we were eating a kid threw a chicken bone onto Felsky's plate. Then someone else threw a napkin. Felsky kept eating. A milk carton landed on his tray, splashing him. And nobody thought twice about this. Nobody said a thing. I was astonished. Nobody <laughs> commented on how strange this was. Not Felsky, not any of the others. Nobody paused or laughed or grinned. It looked like bullying to me, like the vicious acts of antagonistic people. But it didn't feel that way. Felsky just went about his business, as did everyone else. What was going on? As it turned out, there was kind of an explanation. The rules of the place of this cafeteria and the Badge Boy State rules were that at the end of every meal, you had to sort the trays into different components. I don't know if this was to help the dishwashers or if it was just a custom to keep everyone organized or some team building exercise or what. But that's what was required. One person would take all the plates on his tray and another person would take all the glasses and one person would have all the silverware and so on. People would argue for the jobs. They'd say, I'll take the silverware. That was pretty light. Plates were heavy, but manageable. So you got dibs on whatever pretty early in the meal. The worst job, the only truly bad job, was to take the trash. That was a little gross, a little greasy and disgusting. The trash was unruly, unsanitary. Sometimes it was hard to carry to the conveyor belt by the kitchen. Those paper napkins flew off, and the trash, including all the Half eaten food scraps that others left behind slid around your tray. This was the job that Felsky always got. It didn't matter what he said or who he was sitting with. It became so routine. Felsky's got the trash that he just accepted it. Nobody talked about it. It was understood by all that when the jobs were divided up, Felsky would take the trash. And so, because this was so accepted, such a given, people started jumping the gun. Why wait for the end of the meal? Why not start loading his tray with trash now? It's all going to go there eventually. Might as well get a head start. So Felsky, miserable Frank Felsky, who spent his days losing one election after another, would spend his meals eating his food while the people at his table tossed their trash in his direction. It was how someone in a trash compactor might eat bending over his plate while a rain of garbage came down, hoping to keep his food clean, avoiding things like soup that might splash in his face when someone else's piece of gristle landed in the middle of his bowl. Felski, who had thick glasses, didn't even seem to mind. He looked around like one of those blind caterpillars, eager for a connection with the other woodland creatures, but doomed to be isolated in his own cocoon. Of loserdom. For years I thought about Felsky. I told other people about him, about the trash on his tray, and I was somewhere between Nabokov's fun seeker and his solemn reader. At first, I passed along Felsky as a comic buffoon. Uh, Can you believe this guy I met? Have you ever heard of someone so hopeless, so forlorn, so degraded as this kid, Frank Felsky? He lost elections 200 to 0. He had to pick trash out of his food while he was eating. And then, as I grew older, I started railing against the system. What a horrible set of conditions, where these high-achieving kids were put in a room with a felski, and nobody was paying any attention, and the kids sorted themselves out into winners and losers, and they gave each other jobs to do, and this was all the natural byproduct, and the loser kept losing, and the winners kept winning, and the Seesaw had 200 kids on one side and one kid on the other. And maybe that was the lesson we learned about government and how it fits as a, a thin layer on top of the more Hobbesian state of the lunchroom cafeteria. And then, as I grew even more mature, I started thinking about Felsky in a new light. What had happened to that guy? What was it like to be him? He was eternally optimistic he could have stopped running for office, but he didn't. He could have changed his speech, but he didn't do that either. He got up there every time and made the same speech about being meticulous and enthusiastic and dot, dot, dot. And at first, everyone listened, and then everyone laughed, and the counselors told everyone to be respectful until finally after this went on for days, election after election, speech after speech, vote after vote, the councillors were laughing too, and Felsky, dogged Felsky, kept going. What was it about his spirit that made it unbreakable? Years of failure, nothing could make him give up, and yet he wasn't a fighter at all, really. He could have taken the trash off his tray and hurled it back at the other kids. What led him to accept his fate? Even to seem to enjoy the meals, the camaraderie. I was in the group of winners. I was not Felsky. I was one of the ones who could take the silverware now and then. The others recognized in me that it was acceptable to give me the easy job taking turns with one another. I blended in with the non-Felskys. And as I moved to D.C., as I joined the swamp and the workforce that I've been in, whether it's Michigan or Seattle or California or New York City or any of the other places I've lived, I find myself feeling closer to Felsky than I did to the circle of winners I was in back then. Working in an office is horrendous. It's a total nightmare. I'm never comfortable. I never feel like myself. I always feel desperate and shaken and destroyed, and yet I persist. I'm pleasant. I smile at others. I do my job and try to do it well. I pretend, and I imagine that Felski, wherever he is, does the same thing. Years ago, when I read The Overcoat, I found the main character absurd and funny. I found the setting preposterous, the circumstances of his existence, a broad satire. Now, I'm not so sure. I read the story differently. This is Gogol's St. Petersburg, where office drones are striving to no purpose. It's a world he explored to great effect in The Nose, which is another great story, also set in the Bureaucratic Nightmare of St. Petersburg. In fact, I suggest you read The Nose before you read The Overcoat. That's your warm-up. That's the appetizer. Those are the two to read. That's the place to start with Gogol. I plan to talk about the novel Dead Souls and the play The Government Inspector and the story Diary of a Madman. They're all worthy. I don't think I'll have time to give you much more than a quick overview. But you can get a lot out of Gogol out of just those two stories, The Nose and The Overcoat. The Overcoat is better, but I would read The Nose first. So read those two but I'm going to go ahead and talk about them, so if you'd rather not have them spoiled, this is the time to pause this and then go read the stories and come back. Are you ready? The nose begins with a barber, whose shop, we are told, has a sign out front that says, We also let blood. (laughs) Already. I'm smiling at the grim humor of this detail. The barber bites into his breakfast, a hot roll, and he finds a nose, a human nose. How did it get there? He's not sure. He's a little foggy of what happened the night before. He's kind of a hard drinker. But here's what happens. Ivan Yakovlevich let his arms drop to his sides and began rubbing his eyes and feeling around in the roll again. Yes, yes. It was a nose, all right. No mistake about that. And what's more, it seemed a very familiar nose. His face filled with horror. But this horror was nothing compared with his wife's indignation. You beast! Whose nose is that you've cut off? She cried furiously. You scoundrel! You drunkard! I'll report it to the police myself, I will. You thief! Come to think of it, I've heard three customers say when they come in for a shave, you start tweaking their noses about so much it's a wonder they stay on at all. But Ivan felt more dead than alive. He knew that the nose belonged to none other than collegiate assessor Kovalyov, whom he shaved on Wednesdays and Sundays. Wait a minute, preskovya I'll wrap it up in a piece of cloth and put it over there in the corner. Let's leave it there for a bit and then I'll Try and get rid of it. I don't want to know. Do you think I'm going to let a sawn-off nose lie around in my room, you fathead? All you can do is strop that blasted razor of yours and let everything else go to pot. Lay about, night bird, and you expect me to cover up for you with the police? You filthy pig, blockhead! Get that nose out of here, out! Do what you like with it, but I don't want that thing hanging around here a minute longer. Even Yakovlevich was absolutely stunned. He thought and thought, but just didn't know what to make of it. I'm damned if I know what's happened, he said at last, scratching the back of his ear. I can't say for certain if I came home drunk or not last night. All I know is it's crazy. After all, bread is something you bake, but a nose is quite different. Can't make head or tail of it. Ivan Yukovlevich lapsed into silence. The thought that the police might search the place, find the nose, and afterwards bring a charge against him, very nearly sent him out of his mind. Already he could see that scarlet collar, beautifully embroidered with silver, that sword, and he began shaking all over. Finally, he put on his undergarments and boots, pulled on all that nonsense, and with Praskovya Osepovna's vigorous invective ringing in his ears, wrapped the nose up in a piece of cloth and went out into the street. He takes the nose to a bridge in a packet of paper, a piece of cloth, and throws it into the river. A policeman sees him do it. This sounds like a horror story, right? A gruesome tale, a barber with his knife who's cut off a nose, maybe killed a man. Except it's also full of humor. The bizarre responses of the people involved the mundane, almost routine gestures they perform. It's extraordinary, this occurrence, and yet at times they are behaving as if it's an everyday event. But then things get truly inspired. We change scenes to the collegiate assessor who has woken up to discover that he no longer has a nose. It's just gone, as if it's fallen off. not It's not hacked off, not chopped off. He doesn't wake up in a pool of blood. His nose is just gone. And then we get this. Major Kovalev was in the habit of taking a daily stroll along Nevsky Prospect. His shirt collar was always immaculately clean and well-starched. His whiskers were the kind you usually find among provincial surveyors, architects, and regimental surgeons as well as those who have some sort of connection with the police, with anyone, in fact, who has full rosy cheeks and plays a good hand at whist. These were the kind of whiskers that usually reach from the middle of the face right across to the nostrils. Major Kovalyev always carried plenty of seals with him, seals bearing coats of arms or engraved with the words Wednesday, Thursday, Monday, and so on. Major Kovalyov had come to St. Petersburg with the express purpose of finding a position in keeping with his rank. If he was successful, he would get a vice governorship, but failing that, a job as an administrative clerk in some important government department would have to do. Major Kovalyev was not averse to marriage as long as his bride happened to be worth 200,000 rubles. And now the reader can judge for himself the major's state of mind when Instead of a fairly presentable and reasonably sized nose, all he saw was an absolutely preposterous, smooth, flat space. As if this were not bad enough, there was not a cab in sight, and he had to walk home, keeping himself huddled up in his cloak and with a handkerchief over his face, to make people think he was bleeding. "'But perhaps I dreamt it. How could I be so stupid as to go and lose my nose?' With these thoughts, he dropped into a coffee house to take a look at himself in a mirror. Fortunately, the shop was empty, except for some waiters sweeping up and tidying the chairs. A few of them, rather bleary-eyed, were carrying trays laden with hot pies. Yesterday's newspapers, covered in coffee stains, lay scattered on the tables and chairs. Well, thank God there's no one about, he said. Now I can have a look. He approached the mirror rather gingerly and peered into it. "'Damn it! What kind of trick is this?' he cried, spitting on the floor. "'If only there were something to take its place! But there's nothing!' He bit his lips in annoyance, left the coffee-house, and decided not to smile or look at anyone, which was not like him at all. Suddenly he stood rooted to the spot near the front door of some house and witnessed a most incredible spectacle. A carriage drew up at the entrance porch— The doors flew open, and out jumped a uniformed, stooping gentleman who dashed up the steps. The feeling of horror and amazement that gripped Kovalyov when he recognized his own nose defies description. After this extraordinary sight, everything went topsy-turvy. He could hardly keep to his feet, but decided at all costs to wait until the nose returned to the carriage, although he was shaking all over and felt quite feverish. About two minutes later, a nose really did come out. It was wearing a gold-braided uniform with a high stand-up collar and chamois trousers, and it had a sword at its side. From the plumes on its hat, one could tell that it held the exalted rank of state counselor, and it was abundantly clear that the nose was going to visit someone. It looked right, then left, shouted to the coachman, Let's go! Climbed in and drove off. You see what's happened. The nose is life-size now. It can talk. It's wearing a uniform. It can be driven around. It rides in a carriage. Kovalyov chases after it, accuses the nose of not knowing where it's supposed to be, which is on his face. But here's the key. The nose somehow has superseded him in rank. It's three levels above, poor Kovalyov, who's worried about his own loss in status. He says, everyone will wonder how I could be so stupid as to lose my nose. He's going to lose face, so to speak. And he's worried. It's preposterous that his nose has achieved a higher rank than him. Don't make him a figure of fun for that is as well. And now we're in a fantastical world. We know that noses don't really fall off, become as big as a person and come to life. We get that this is kind of a fable, a fairy tale, a fantasy, but we're also laughing at the responses of this bureaucrat. And we're seeing just how ridiculous he probably is. How sensitive he probably is to things like the positioning of his window or whether he's given three weeks of vacation a year instead of two. What he's called by others. What did they think of him? Can he improve his title? That kind of thing. And good Lord, does this ring true for those of us in America's capital city today, where people will turn blind with rage over losing their parking spot in the company lot. Or where a building, I spent years working in a building that had a huge inner courtyard. And all the corners of the building, both inside and out, were not square, but jagged. And the only reason it was built like that was because instead of four corner offices on each floor, they could have 16, eight on the outside, eight on the inside, because very important people needed to have a corner office. They demanded it. I've seen people jostling for position in a photo with a senator because they were going to count how many people away they were from the senator. The spot right next to the senator, the immediate left and immediate right were spoken for. But what about two down and three down and four down? Who gets those and five down and six down? I'm five away from the senator. No, you're not. You're six away. I'm five away. Proximity matters. And so people stand there arguing, elbowing their way in, shoving aside, trying to be polite, but also asserting themselves. And I'm standing off to the side saying, can't we just do... Taller people in the back or something? Does it really matter who stands next to the senator? And so I end up on the end because I truly can't bring myself to care about the symbolism of what it means. And that's why this system spits me up and chews me out. Actually, come to think of it, I wasn't in the picture at all. Have I told you my story about the time I worked for the senator? It was a long time ago. I was the press intern but this was before the days of the Internet, really. The Internet was still brand new, so we were working with newspapers. My job was to cut out important articles, and especially anything that mentioned the senator, and photocopy them into a bundle, which I delivered to the important people in the office. And I never, ever got to hand them to the senator, because important people would demand that I deliver the senator's copy to them first so they could hand them to the senator. They needed that access. They didn't want me to have it. They didn't want their rivals to have it either, so they would argue and push and pull and cajole and order and complain. They would wheedle. I was the object of their wheedling. From day to day, I never knew exactly who should get the senator's copy, so I I made multiple copies and wrote Senator on top of All of them, let them race to deliver them to the great man. Sometimes he probably got two or three in one day, which probably made him curious, but it was easier for me that way than to try to referee the squabbling going on around me. So I spent several months there at this office, and then I was headed off to graduate school. I told my wife, who was then my girlfriend, that I was sort of sad to leave because Capitol Hill had been fun, but on the other hand, I'd also felt like I'd never really fit in there, which was a shame because it was a Wisconsin senator, and I was from Wisconsin, and the people were all more or less my age working there, early 20s. And I thought I would have a better time with them. And my girlfriend said, oh, Jack, I'm sure you're imagining that. No, no, I said, and I I told her my explanation, which I had developed, how I'd been to school in Chicago and lived in Italy and Taiwan and had traveled all through Europe and Hong Kong and China and India and Tibet, And Africa, and how it seemed like the Wisconsinites all sort of recognized that about me and disdained me. They rejected me. They must have sensed the difference. I was no longer someone they wanted to treat as one of the group. I was not one of their own anymore. And she said, Jack, you must be imagining this. This has to be in your head. And I said, No, no, here's proof. They all go out on Friday nights. I've never been invited. They celebrate each other's birthdays in the conference room and they don't ask me to go. They all just meet in there without me. And one day, they all took a photo with the senator and they didn't tell me they were doing it. I just stumbled across them, all dressed up and all lined up. Me standing there with some newspaper articles in my hand. So I just stood there watching. And some people tried to wave me into the picture, but I felt so left out by then I didn't think it was right that I should join. And she said, hmm, that's actually pretty good evidence. Well, it's a good thing we're moving on. So then on my last day, I was at my exit interview with the chief of staff of the senator's office and uh, the chief of staff says, ah, yes, Jack Wilson, remind me of your email password because we'll probably be reusing that account. And I said, email? And he said, yes, you're intern five. Now, what was the password? I looked at him dumbly, email, email. I did not know that I had an email account there. So then he looked up the password and I went back to my desk and logged in for the very first time to my email account intern five. And there were months of messages to me inviting me to happy hours, telling me about the birthday cake in the conference room, telling me to wear nice clothes because we were taking our staff picture with the senator. All these things that I had missed. And I felt like crying with joy. They liked me. They really liked me. I was one of them. I was included after all, except it was time for me to leave. And I didn't know what to say to anyone. So at the end of the day, I just stood up, logged out, and left. Thinking the whole time about how strange it must have seemed whenever someone had a birthday and the cake was in the conference room at 3 o'clock and at 5 to 3, everyone stood up and walked to the conference room, started singing happy birthday and slicing up the cake and laughing, having a good time, and I just sat there at my desk... Staring at them all as they passed by, astonished that yet again they all seemed to know exactly what to do and when, as if they were being highly sinister in keeping me from any kind of social participation. I just sat there, staring at them and then turning back to my screen, saying nothing, feeling hated. But they probably thought I was the strangest person they never met. That's why Gogol hits me so hard. The world of vicious killers where people run around cutting off people's noses, sort of the Quentin Tarantino version of the nose. That's not really my world. The world where you wake up and look in the mirror and your nose has just fallen off because you've lost it. That's closer. The world where you look in the mirror and think, I'm not who I thought I was. Or, I don't recognize this person looking back at me. Or, how did I become this guy? How did that even happen? Because it's not just physical. It feels physical, but it's mental, really. It's psychological. It happens in offices. It happens in groups. It happens in life. It's almost beyond your control. It might be totally beyond your control. It had never felt to me like I could control it. And then you have to go back to work and get on with your day, thinking how strange everything and everyone is. Go read The Nose. It's very funny and very clever and will hit you hard, I think. But let's move on to The Overcoat. This one is about a man named Akeki akakievich who has an improbable name, and he's a copyist. A copyist, that's all he does. He copies things. Shades of Bartleby the Scrivener. Once he's given a different project and it's too stressful for him, he grows too anxious, he hates it. But he's very, very good at copying things. And his coworkers think he's been there forever, just copying away like a machine. And they like to make fun of him. The details bring him to life for me. I know people like this. Google tells us, the narrator here tells us at his christening... As a baby, young Akaki burst into tears because, says our narrator, he knew he was going to grow up to become a titular counselor. Yet again, we have a title, a status, a rank. This is the St. Petersburg of Gogol's time, where these minute differences in title mean the world to the people who inhabit them. I'm the one who delivers the clips to the senator, Jack. That's this world. The Penguin edition of Gogol's Stories, which is excellent. I highly recommend it. And if any of you are in the publicity department at Penguin, why don't you contact me to advertise on this podcast? I love all your books, and I'm willing to give you good spots at good rates. Anyway, the Penguin edition lists the, ta- the table of ranks, which Peter the Great introduced in 1722. It gave class and rank for the civil service the army and navy, the clergy, and the imperial court. For the civil service, the classes and ranks were as follows. Class 1, rank chancellor. Class 2, actual privy counselor. Class 3, privy counselor. Class 4, actual state counselor. Class 5, state counselor. 6, collegiate counselor. 7, court counselor. 8, collegiate assessor. 9. Titular Counselor. 10. Collegiate Secretary. 11. Ship Secretary. 12. Government Secretary. 13. Provincial Secretary. Senate Registrar. Synod Registrar. Cabinet Registrar. 14. Collegiate Registrar. Imagine. Imagine a world where you have these 14 different classes, 17 different ranks, Just hearing those words reminds me of the world we're in here with Gogol. As The Office put it, remember the show, The Office? As they put it, are you an assistant manager or an assistant to the manager? It's a big, big deal when you're forced to create your identity out of these weird workplaces, these weird levels of status, artificial creations. Listen to this. Listen to this from the overcoat. Exactly when he entered the department, and who was responsible for the appointment, no one can say for sure. No matter how many directors and principals came and went, he was always to be seen in precisely the same place, sitting in exactly the same position, doing exactly the same work, just routine copying, pure and simple. Subsequently, everyone came to believe that he had come into this world already equipped for his job, complete with uniform and bald patch. No one showed him the least respect in the office. The porters not only remained seated when he went by, but they did not so much as give him a look, as though a common housefly had just flown across the waiting room. His superiors treated him icily and despotically. Some assistant to the head clerk would shove some papers right under his nose without even so much as a please copy this out or here's an interesting little job or some pleasant remark you might expect to hear in refined establishments. He would take whatever was put in front of him without looking up to see who had put it there or questioning whether he had any right to do so. His eyes fixed only on his work. He would simply take the documents and immediately start copying them out. The junior clerks laughed and told jokes at his expense as far as office wit would stretch, telling stories they had made up themselves, even while they were standing right next to him, about his 70-year-old landlady, for example, who used to beat him, or so they said. They would ask when the wedding was going to be and shower his head with little bits of paper, calling them snow. Ah, this is Felsky, right? the trash thrown on the tray, the head with little bits of paper. As his colleagues mock his love life, Felsky has grown up and become a titular counselor in 19th century Russia. It's the same guy. He can't finish his sentences either. They just trail off into nothing, just like Felsky. But here's why Gogol is so good. Felsky, I mean, a khaki, is not just the butt of jokes. This isn't just a comic buffoon. This isn't just an indictment of bullies. The bullies don't know why they do what they do, and they regret it, and they're helpless, just as Akaki is helpless too. But he's also more than that. He's finding himself. Listen to where we go after we get the paper showering down like snow. But Akaki Akakievich did not make the slightest protest, just as though there were nobody there at all. His work was not even affected, and he never copied out one wrong letter in the face of all this annoyance. Only if the jokes became too unbearable, when somebody jogged his elbow, for example, and stopped him from working, would he say, Leave me alone. Why do you have to torment me? There was something strange in these words and the way he said them. His voice had a peculiar sound, which made you feel sorry for him. So much so that one clerk, who was new to the department— and who was about to follow the example of the others and have a good laugh at him, suddenly stopped dead in his tracks, as though transfixed. And from that time onwards, everything seemed to have changed for him, and now appeared in a different light. Some kind of supernatural power alienated him from his colleagues whom, on first acquaintance, he had taken to be respectable, civilized men. And for a long time afterwards, even during his gayest moments, he would see that stooping figure with a bald patch in front, muttering pathetically, Leave me alone. Why do you have to torment me? And in these piercing words, he could hear the sound of others. I am your brother. The poor young man would bury his face in his hands, and many times later in life, shuddered at the thought of how brutal men could be, and how the most refined manners and breeding, often concealed the most savage coarseness, even, dear God, in someone universally recognized for his honesty and uprightness. You hear that? That's the me, curious at how Felsky was being treated. Here's a man who looks at the way he's being treated and says, I thought these were civilized men. How can they do this to someone? Gogol is setting us up. Gogol is standing in for us as the reader, telling us how to think, telling us the right way to think about a situation like this. And then he gives us this, this further description of our copyist, Hakaki. One would be hard put to find a man anywhere who so lived for his work. To say he worked with zeal would be an understatement. No, he worked with love. In that copying of his, he glimpsed a whole varied and pleasant world of his own. One could see the enjoyment on his face. Some letters were his favorites, and whenever he came to write them out, he would be beside himself with excitement, softly laughing to himself and winking, willing his pen on with his lips so you could tell what letter his pen was carefully tracing, so it seemed, just by looking at him. Had his rewards been at all commensurate with his enthusiasm, he might perhaps have been promoted to state councillor, much to his own surprise. But as the wags in the office put it, all he got for his labor was a badge in his buttonhole and piles in his posterior. However, you could not say he was completely ignored. One of the directors, a kindly gentleman who wished to reward him for his long service, once ordered him to be given something rather more important than ordinary copying, the preparation of a report for another department from a completed file. All this entailed was altering the title page and changing a few verbs from the first to the third person. This caused him so much trouble that he broke out in a sweat, kept mopping his brow, and finally said, no, you'd better let me stick to plain copying. After that, they let him go on copying forever and ever. Apart from this copying, nothing else existed, as far as he was concerned. He gave no thought at all to his clothes. His uniform was not what you might call green, but a mealy white tinged with red. His collar was very short and narrow, so that his neck, which could not exactly be called long, appeared to stick out for miles, like those plaster kittens with wagging heads foreign street peddlers carry around by the dozen. Something was always sure to be sticking to his uniform, a wisp of hay or a piece of thread. What is more, he had this strange knack of passing underneath windows when walking down the street, just as some rubbish was being emptied, and this explained why he was perpetually carrying around scraps of melon rind and similar refuse on his hat. Not once in his life did he notice what was going on in the street he passed down every day, unlike his young colleagues in the service, who are famous— for their hawk-like eyes, eyes so sharp they can even see whose trouser strap has come undone on the other side of the pavement, something which never fails to bring a sly grin to their faces. But even if Akaki Akakievich did happen to notice something, all he ever saw were rows of letters in his own neat, regular handwriting. Only if a horse's muzzle appeared from out of nowhere, propped itself on his shoulder, and fanned his cheek with a gust from its nostrils. Only then did he realize he was not in the middle of a sentence, but in the middle of the street. As soon as he got home, he would sit down at the table, quickly swallow his cabbage soup, and eat some beef and onions, tasting absolutely nothing and gulping everything down, together with whatever the good lord happened to provide at the time, flies included. When he saw that his stomach was beginning to swell, he would get up from the table fetch his inkwell, and start copying out documents he had brought home with him. If he had no work from the office, he would copy out something else, just for his own personal pleasure, especially if the document in question happened to be remarkable not for its stylistic beauty, but because it was addressed to some newly appointed or important person. Even at that time of day when the light has completely faded from the gray St. Petersburg sky and the whole clerical brotherhood has eaten its fill according to salary and palate, when everyone has rested from departmental pen pushing and running around, when his own and everyone else's absolutely indispensable labors have been forgotten, as well as all those other things that restless man sets himself to do of his own free will, sometimes even more than is really necessary. When the civil servant dashes off to enjoy his remaining hours of freedom as much as he can, one showing a more daring spirit by careering off to the theatre, another sauntering down the street to spend his time looking at cheap little hats in the shop windows, another going off to a party to waste his time flattering a pretty girl, the shining light of some small circle of civil servants, while another and this happens more often than not, goes off to visit a friend from the office living on the third or second floor in two small rooms with hall and kitchen, and with some pretensions to fashion in the form of a lamp or some little trifle which has cost a great many sacrifices, refusals to invitations to dinner or country outings. In short, at that time of day when all the civil servants have dispersed to their friend's little flats for a game of whist, sipping tea from glasses, and nibbling little biscuits, drawing on their long pipes, and giving an account while dealing out the cards of the latest scandal which had wafted down from high society. A Russian can never resist stories. Or when there is nothing new to talk about, retelling the age-old anecdote about the Commandant, who was told that the tale of the horse and falconet statue of Peter the Great had been cut off, briefly, even when everyone was doing his best to amuse himself. Akaki Akakievich did not abandon himself to any such pleasures. No one could remember ever having seen him at a party. After he had copied to his heart's content, he would go to bed, smiling in anticipation of the next day and what God would send him to copy. So passed the uneventful life of a man who, on a salary of 400 rubles, was perfectly happy with his lot. And this life might have continued to pass peacefully until ripe old age, had it not been for the various calamities that lie in wait, not only for titular counselors, but even privy, state, court, and all types of counselor, even those who give advice to no one, nor take it from anyone. Mm -hmm. Do you feel how deep this is? How good Gogol is? He doesn't just present a felsky, me, he helps me understand what Felsky means. This is my view of Felsky now. I wish I could redo that encounter. I wish I could go back with my current level of maturity and reach out to Felsky and not be one of the faceless guys at the table, but to try to really understand Felsky. Where does this unusual creature fit? What does his psychology mean for the rest of us? What does it say about us as humans? How does he endure? Why do the rest of us group around him, pretending our own lives have meaning, pretending we have everything figured out, pretending we are not, at bottom, just as pointless and absurd as Felsky? The world is pointless. The world is absurd, whether it's St. Petersburg in 1819 or D.C. 200 years later. Whether it was cavemen sitting around a fire and thinking about smearing some charcoal on a cave wall, or some future humans bowing down to their android overlords, we humans live in a world of fiction, a world where we tell stories and myths and legends about ourselves in order to mask the hard reality of endless futility and doomed pointlessness of human existence. That's the truest thing you can say about humans. We are pointless, and yet we are convinced otherwise. We spend great energies disguising that fact from others and from ourselves. Gogol's a khaki, rips that open, exposes that hole, shows us the entrance to the abyss. This story the overcoat, says Nabokov, is a grotesque and grim nightmare, making black holes in the dim pattern of life. The problem for Akaki, what disrupts his otherwise mildly happy routine, is the northern frost of St. Petersburg. It's cold, and his old coat is so threadbare it's basically a nightgown. So he goes to a tailor, who's all puffed up with self-importance, and who grandly declares that he can't fix or patch such a thread-worn item. It will fall apart as soon as he touches it with a needle. So the tailor, who is himself a great comic character, finely drawn, hilarious. This is Gogol's world. People with misplaced expertise, with confidence, with airs who look at themselves as if in a mirror, who have this grand conception of themselves. This tailor ends up talking a khaki into buying an expensive, handsome, well-made overcoat. We might think here that we know what's going to happen, that a khaki is going to be ripped off. Maybe the tailor will make it out of rags or something overcharge him, but no. He provides the coat. It's very handsome. He did a gorgeous job, and it works. It transforms a khaki. His colleagues admire it. They see him differently now. Others respect him for the first time. And me reading it today, I'm a little transformed too. I wonder if this was Felsky. Maybe a woman fell in love with him. Someone cute and charming, someone that other men thought, hey, Felsky, not bad. Maybe Felsky saved up and bought a Tesla. Maybe something else gave him a little cachet around his office, wherever that is. Akaki Akakievich, the copyist, is a man of status thanks to his overcoat. Things are looking up for him. And then, on the first night he wears the thing, he gets attacked and the coat is stolen. Of course. We know how things work out for the Felskis. Everything good is ruined eventually. Even the all-you-can-eat ice cream is about to get someone else's garbage tossed into it. It's the law of the jungle, the law of the universe. The mocking gods of fate in action. Poor Akaki. His friends talk him into seeing an important person about getting it back, but of course, the important person is more concerned with his own self image, and he attacks Akaki. Akakievich really lets him have it, scaring Akaki, who faints in response, which doesn't make the important person feel bad or have any sympathy for him. He's kind of excited. This is a new development for him. He didn't know that he commanded that kind of power, that his words and his presence could put a shock like that into a young man, which he thinks of Akaki as being a young civil servant even though a khaki is 50. Meanwhile, nature is on the attack. Here's a khaki after he leaves the important person with no hope of regaining his overcoat. He continually stumbled off the pavement as he struggled on with his mouth wide open in the face of a raging blizzard that whistled down the street. As it normally does in St. Petersburg, the wind was blowing from all four corners of the earth and from every single side street. In a twinkling, his throat was inflamed, and when he finally dragged himself home, he was unable to say one word. He put himself to bed and broke out all over in swellings. That is what a proper and necessary dressing down can sometimes do for you. The next day, he had a high fever. Thanks to the generous assistance of the Petersburg climate, the illness made much speedier progress than one might have expected. And when the doctor arrived and felt his pulse, all he could prescribe was a poultice. And only then, for the simple reason that he did not wish his patient to be deprived of the salutary benefits of medical aid. However, he did advance the diagnosis that Akaki Akakievich would not last another day and a half. No doubt about that. And then, kaput. After which, he turned to the landlady and said, Now don't waste any time, and order a pine coffin right away, as he won't be able to afford oak. Whether Akaki Akakievich heard these fateful words, and if he did hear them, whether they shocked him into some feeling of regret for his wretched life, no one has the slightest idea, since he was feverish and delirious the whole time. Strange visions, each weirder than the last, paraded endlessly before him, In one he could see Petrovitch the tailor, and he was begging him to make an overcoat with special traps to catch the thieves that seemed to be swarming under his bed. Every other minute he called out to his landlady to drag one out, which, which had actually crawled under the blankets. In another he was asking why his old dressing gown was hanging up there when he had a new overcoat. Then he imagined himself standing next to the general and after being duly and properly reprimanded, saying, I'm sorry, Your Excellency. In the end, he started cursing and swearing, and let forth such a torrent of terrible obscenities that his good landlady crossed herself, as she had never heard the like from him in all her born days, especially as the curses always seemed to follow right after those, Your Excellencies. Later on, he began to talk complete gibberish, until it was impossible to understand anything, except that this jumble of words and thoughts always centered on one and the same overcoat. Finally, poor Akaki Akakievich gave up the ghost. Neither his room nor what he had in the way of belongings was sealed off, in the first place because he had no family, and in the second place because his worldly possessions did not amount to very much at all. A bundle of goose quills, one choir of white government paper, three pairs of socks, two or three buttons, that had come off his trousers and the dressing gown with which the reader is already familiar. Whom all this went to, God only knows. And the author of this story confesses that he is not even interested. Akaki Akakievich was carted away and buried, and St. Petersburg carried on without its Akaki Akakievich just as though he had never even existed. Mm. The doctor in that passage has that misplaced confidence again. He says, Akaki won't last a day and a half. (laughs) Why such a weird time? Not a day, not two days, but a day and a half. That's for certain. Then he calls out for a coffin while his patient is still there within earshot. And finally, we hear the death of Akaki Akakievich, filled with visions of overcoats, and thieves, fantastical overcoats, misunderstandings about overcoats, and lost overcoats. He suddenly starts cursing. This is just a beautiful passage. And then the wrap-up by the author. What a tragedy, an anonymous death. Except Gogol isn't finished. We get a coda to the story where a ghost arrives. And there are rumors of a ghost haunting the streets of St. Petersburg. Someone, this individual, this ghost, trying to get an overcoat, trying to get some revenge. The story is not really a ghost story in the conventional sense, and it's not a revenge story. We don't feel the pleasure of seeing a khaki get what he deserves or any wrongs being righted. We're not left shivering in the dark about ghosts. In fact, There's some question about whether this ghost or at least certain sightings of this ghost even was a khaki. Might have been the guy in the overcoat, the guy who stole the thing, a real person. Anyway, we're not left shivering in the dark about ghosts. We're left shivering in the dark about the way we treat people and the way we are treated. What haunts us is the knowledge that life is absurd and cruel and that we are the victims of that and we're the perpetrators too. And in the end. The ghost fades away into the mist, ready to haunt us because we are poised to be haunted. We're getting what we deserve. We're all on that bridge and we all fade away. The night swallows us all. The night came for Gogol, a friend of Pushkin. He influenced the later generation of authors as Pushkin did. But Gogol himself had a bright, fast-burning. Everything he wrote came in a period of about 10 years. When he was young, his first book that he wrote, his classmates mocked him for it, and he burned it up. Then he found himself, got immediate success, and then in 10 years cranked out the 19 stories and a lot of essays and other works that made him famous, including the five that deserve a spot on the world stage today. The Nose, The Overcoat, the other big three that we haven't talked about. Real quick, they were The Diary of a Madman, which is a first-person story of a minor civil servant descending into madness. The Government Inspector, a successful play about a group of corrupt government workers in the provinces who hear that someone, they're not quite sure who, has been sent to inspect them. And then there's the marvelous, majestic novel Dead Souls about a man who develops a financial scheme to purchase their rights to serfs who have died. How did that work? Because of the way the taxation rules worked back then, landowners were still responsible for paying the tax associated with their serfs from one census to the next, even if the serfs had died in the meantime. So these dead serfs, dead souls, were essentially property, were still taxed for some period of time. So a man goes to buy the dead souls, alleviating the tax burden for the Landowners who are happy to get rid of them. And he gives him some property that he can then mortgage. He's trying to work his way up in the world, acquire some property. His encounters with the people that he meets as he tries to swindle them without telling them his true plan are hilarious and they make Dead Souls into one of the finest satires in Russian and indeed all of literature. It's well worth reading. Those five masterpieces were written in a ten-year period. Gogol lived another ten years after that. He had the idea of writing two more volumes of Dead Souls to follow the path of Dante with the Inferno, Purgatorio, Paradiso, Dead Souls being the Inferno. Gogol worked for years on the second volume and burned the manuscript. He lived in Rome for years, famous and successful, writing nothing that ever caught on even fans of gogol find the later works not worth while it's as if the felsky and gogol took over again we can't all be celebrities we can't all be geniuses we can't all be successes and even if we are it can't always last but those 10 glorious years can last we have the works still holding up well 200 years later and we have the influence that the works had on later generations. Here's Nabokov again. Steady Pushkin, matter-of-fact Tolstoy, restrained Chekhov have all had their moments of irrational insight which simultaneously blurred the sentence and disclosed a secret meaning worth the sudden focal shift. But with Gogol, this shifting is the very basis of his art, so that whenever he tried to write in the round hand of literary tradition and to treat rational ideas in a logical way, he lost all trace of talent, when, as in his immortal The Overcoat, he really let himself go, and pottered happily on the brink of his private abyss, he became the greatest artist that Russia has yet produced. The greatest artist... Russia has yet produced. And for all my deep and abiding love for Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Chekhov, my God, I practically have a shrine to Chekhov on my bookshelf. This time, when I read Gogol, I found myself in deep agreement with Nabokov. Gogol is the one. Gogol does it. I sat on a plane, sipping some whiskey with Puccini in my headphones, reading about the hapless Akaki Akakievich and thinking about Frank Felsky and thinking about my own meager life and the course that it's taken, the long downward spiral. And I started to weep, not for tragedy, although there's an element of tragedy in the overcoat, just as there is in my life and the lives of everyone. But I wasn't weeping for tragedy. I was weeping for beauty, Or maybe I should say I was weeping for art. Or maybe I should say it was for reality, for life, for all of that mixed together. I was weeping for myself, for my past and my present and my future. And I was weeping for all the people I know or have ever known and the billions of fellow travelers I will never meet. But I know them too, somehow. Because I know what a khaki they have in them. And I know how they treat khakis, whether they're in D.C. or Denmark, St. Petersburg, or St. Kitts. I know the pattern, and I know the black holes, because I've seen them. And I was weeping for all of it. I was weeping for Gogol. Gogol is why I read. Gogol is why I live okay there we go (laughs) oh that's gonna do it for the episode of this episode of the history of literature i owe this little podcast so much and this week i'm thankful for giving me the chance to read and think about and talk about Gogol. i hope you enjoyed it We'll be back soon with some Mike palindrome and of course we'll have some other authors for you. Maybe some Shakespeare, maybe some more Jane Austen because you can never have enough of those two. Thomas Hardy's on the list as is Joyce Carol Oates. Both of those two have been often requested. And remember to let me know if there are any past episodes you'd like me you'd like to nominate for our up, upcoming oh, can't get this out. Any episodes you'd like to nominate for our upcoming episode 200. Let me know what you think is worthy and why. If you'd like to help us out here at the History of Literature podcast, you can head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash literature and sign up for a small monthly donation. Or you can buy me a virtual coffee by zipping over to historyofliterature.com shop. If money's not your thing and credit's not, maybe it's not a great time for you. Maybe that's just not how you choose to help. I understand. You can still help out by ranking us with 5 stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast, leaving a review somewhere or telling your friends that hey, they might want to give the show a listen. Maybe you had a Felski in your life and maybe you don't know how to reach out. Well, Jack Wilson is here. You can reach out to me. I can be your Felski and believe me, I am extremely well qualified to do it. I've had years and years of life grinding me down. I am a Felski. Maybe we all are, even those of us who've done an exceptional job of fooling ourselves and fooling others. Well, you're not fooling everyone, people. You didn't fool Gogol. But maybe if you read a little Gogol, you'll find that out for yourselves. It's worth the effort, I think. Okay, I'm Jack Wilson. (laughs) Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.